The following audio is from a sermon series called Everyday Gospel. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Sacred City. We are a church that believes that the gospel doesn't just save us, but it has the power to actually transform us, to completely renew us. And uh, we hope, if you're a visitor especially, we hope that you feel refreshed having been here today by the gospel. Um, ranch, I'm not a rancher at all, um, but I do know this. Ranches in the U.S., they tend to have fences around them to keep the animals in. Uh, a, a guy named Jim Belcher has pointed out that ranches in Australia, they have in, in Australia, that is huge, vast ranches, lots of acreage, but no fences. So you may wonder, well, how do, how do they keep the animals around? Well, they, they have a well at the center that keeps the animals around. They, don't, they just don't leave because they want, they want what the well provides. And so if you apply that to churches, you know, a lot of churches, the, the, the thing that keeps people around are the boundaries and the rules. Um, we don't want that to be what keeps people here. We want it to be the well, right? And the well is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, my name is Casey Shutt. I'm, I'm an elder in training here. We've been a member for about a year. Our family has. Um, I'm the headmaster at a it's preschool through 12th grade school. Called, it's a classical Christian school called Morning Star Academy. Um, and our pastor, Justin, who would normally be here today, he's actually out of town uh, learning about missional communities and how we can improve upon what we do on that. Because what we do here on Sunday morning is just the tip of the iceberg of Sacred City. And, and so much more happens at what we call missional communities. Let's pray and we'll, we'll jump into this text here in Ephesians. Father, we, uh, we do need your help. Um, we want to drink deeply of the well that is found in the gospel. And we know, we trust that when we do, though, when we do that, if we've tasted what you provide, we will, o- obedience will just flow from that. And so we pray um, that that would be the case this morning, that we would taste uh, And see that you are good and that you are powerful and that you have uh, the power to inform all of life, especially parenting. And we need your help. I pray that your spirit would work through uh, my words and would work through your word, word, the Bible, and would also help uh, those in attendance to hear what you have to say. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, as we've said many times, we believe that the gospel has the mileage to inform every aspect of life. And that's what we're looking at these last, last week and then this week and next week. We're going to uh, look at how the gospel informs these kind of basic aspects of life. And this week, the topic is parenting. Um, C.S. Lewis, he's, 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 he has lots of good quotes. One of them is this. He says, I believe in Christianity 
like I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. And so that's, that's the goal this morning. How does, the, how does Christianity, how does Christ and his work inform um, parenting? And it's fitting that Justin asked me to preach this, this sermon this morning. Because I have three children, uh, ages six and down, and uh, ages six, three, and two months. And um, my wife and I have basically mastered parenting in these few short years. And I'm, I'm really happy that I have the opportunity to pass along to you my extensive wisdom on this subject. That's not true at all, right? Um, the com- Jim Gaffigan's a comedian. He has five children. I think they're all under the age of five. I mean, they're, they're real tightly packed in there, those five children. They live in a two-bedroom apartment in New York City, which is just crazy. And he describes um, having five children like this. He says, pretend that you're drowning and that someone hands you a crying baby. That's what five children is like. And that's how we feel oftentimes with just three children. Um, So we certainly don't have it all together. And there's so many ways in which I'm not adequately prepared to be speaking on this subject. But I do know this. Uh, We feel, as parents, my wife and I, feel as though we uh, we have this great honor and responsibility in raising our children. Right, the Bible speaks of children's arrows. They're arrows in your quiver. And at some point, you're going to shoot those arrows and they're going to do a great work. And so that's a responsibility. Our first child was born in England. And we, I was a student at Durham University. And we lived in international housing. So um, you know, our little apartment building was just a melting pot of people from every continent and all sorts of countries. And we brought um, our our daughter home. And it was interesting because everyone, different cultures, different ethnicities all had a different opinion as to how we should raise our parent. You know, some of our friends from Asia said, well, you're not going to take your child outside. Are you, you know, after a couple of weeks of being born, it was just supposed to stay inside and kind of be protected and insulated from germs and all of that. And then, you know, the Scandinavian friends were like, well, you need to open the windows when it's sleeping. It needs fresh air. Even when it's 20 degrees, set them, let them nap outside in that cool, fresh air. You know, and, and as we were hearing all of these different opinions from all over the world, it was kind of like, it's a, it's a wonder that kids even turn out okay in the first place. Because everybody has such a range of views on what parenting is. And, as I, and even within our country here in the U.S., Um, there's a range of views as to what good parenting looks like. And as I see it, there's kind of two models of parenting that have kind of bubbled to the surface. One is what I would call the strict disciplinarian. The strict disciplinarian. This is kind of the the tough parents, right? Tough love. Um, We'll drive our children. And usually, oftentimes, it seems as those, those, those children turn out pretty well. Um, Andre Agassi, the tennis player, um, his dad was this type of father. Very strict. A a couple years ago, Agassi came out with a book about his life, um, and and then he also did a little 60 Minutes interview alongside that book. I didn't read the book, but I did see the interview. And he, um, he described the seriousness with which his dad took tennis. Like from the age of two, he would strap tape paddles to Agassiz's hands so that he would walk around and learn how to like hit things with paddles and not use his hands. 
put him through these intense workouts. When he was um, age seven, he kind of rigged this pitching machine to spew out tennis balls at 107 mile, 110 miles per hour at him. And he, he said he called it the dragon. He was extremely, naturally, I mean, I'd be afraid of a 110, tennis mile, uh, 110 mile per hour tennis ball flying at me. And he's, he was age seven. And tennis was the only thing that mattered in the Agassiz household. In fact, his dad would, would pull the kids out of school to go to the court and spend four or five hours working on tennis. And he regularly said, school doesn't matter. Tennis is what's going to matter for you. And it seems to have worked, right? I mean, Agassiz was, is amazing. Tennis player, superstar. He was, an inter, he, he was an icon in an international sport. At least that's how things appeared. But as his book reveals, uh, he, Agassiz hated tennis. All those years that he was playing, even as, when he was very successful, he hated the game. But he felt he had nowhere else to turn. It was the only thing he felt he was good at. He also despised his life and turned to crystal meth in order to kind of cope with, with life. And, you know, it, when, when I think of Andre Agassi, I think of one thing. It was that hair that he had. Um, he had this just, you know, 1980s hairdo that would make any 80s rock star jealous. It was just gorgeous. But here's the funny thing. It, it was actually a wig. He, balded, he, he went bald at a very early age. And the thing was a wig, this, this, this you know, thing that we associate with Agassiz. And the night, the, the night before the 1990 French Open, the thing started falling apart. And so his brother, he and his brother were in the hotel room uh, safety pinning it together. And he went out on the court then this is the championship of the French Open. And he, even though he lost, he said that day was a victory. Because that wig stayed intact. It stayed on, right? But that wig is kind of a little window into Agassiz's experience. Like, all that we saw was a facade. And he was, he was extremely miserable. His dad's um, discipline and just kind of riding him hard drove Agassiz to misery. To misery. So we look at that hard-nosed approach, the strict disciplinarian, and we think, maybe that's not the best way to parent. And so the pendulum swings, right, to the other side. Well, let's just, let, this is what I call the gentle cheerleader approach. It's kind of, let's take a more laissez-faire approach to raising our kids. We'll let them just kind of roam free-range style. Let them uh, kind of navigate their own course through life and we'll kind of gently stroke their self-esteem as they grow older but basically we'll let them define themselves which which of these two approaches strict disciplinarian the gentle cheerleader which of these two approaches is right which is the way that which is the way that we should go well thankfully the bible gives us actually quite a bit on the topic of parenting uh, and we're going to settle in on Ephesians chapter 6, which is fitting because we actually looked at Ephesians chapter 5 last week. But the book of Ephesians is a great book. It's a powerful book because it's, it's so sweeping. And as Justin said last week, it gives us what we see in the book of Ephesians is this galactic view of the gospel. In it, Paul explains the magnificent scope of the gospel 
and how it plays out in life. And he zeroes in on uh, these very common relationships that we have. He talks about husband and wife relationships. He talks about employer-employee relationships, how the gospel should inform that. And then, and then as he talks this morning, he talks about how it should affect uh, the relationship between a parent and a child. And chapter 6, verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, it's interesting because Paul wrote these letters with the intent that they would be read out loud in a corporate gathering like this. So the church at Ephesus would gather and someone would read the letter to the church. And in it, Paul addresses specifically children. Now, a lot of our children are in children's church, and I think that's appropriate. Um, But for the children that remain, I want to address you for a moment. Your parents love you, and I know it may not seem that way at times. It may seem like they're just out to kind of stifle your freedom and keep you from doing what you want to do, but it's for your good. And we live in a culture that looks down upon authority, and and authority in general, but looks even more down on, on, on parenting in particular, You know, can you think of a movie or a show or even a commercial where a parent comes off looking good or shown in a positive light? You know, typically parents are portrayed as just being incompetent at best and tyrannical at worst. That's the image. And I would ask you, children, to resist that, to be countercultural. Don't view your parent or your dad as like a Homer Simpson. They know what they're talking about. Our Your parents, they have experience. Um, They have wisdom. I was listening, and, and and so they have, what they say is wisdom oftentimes. Um, and I, I was listening to a preacher, uh, make this point. Um, and it's a good point. He says, children, remember that there was a time way back in your life, maybe before you even can remember, probably before you can remember. Actually, I hope before you can remember a time way back in your life when you believed that true happiness and joy was to be found in pooping in your pants. It was. And you, children, will, they will kick, they will scream, they will slap. We just experienced this with one of ours. They will resist with every ounce of energy within them pooping on the toilet. And yet, parents, we, we hold you down and you finally go after two and a half hours. That was the experience a couple of weeks ago. Um, and they finally go and then, and your parents are right on that one, weren't they? That, that, was, that was wisdom on the part of your parents. And you may be thinking, well, yeah, yeah, whatever. I was two, I was two years old then, you know. I'm 10 now. I, I kind of know things better. Well, here's the thing. Your 12, does your 10-year-old self look back on your 6-year-old self and think, what was I thinking? Why did I act in that way? Your 12-year-old self is going to look back on your 10-year-old self and think, why, why did I say those things? And why did I act that way? And why did I do those things? And the same is going to be true when your 20-year-old self looks back at your teenage self and your 30-something self looks back on your 20-year-old self. You're always going to look back and think, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, was not, I was acting foolishly back then. 
We need someone outside of ourselves directing our lives, right? And so parent, children, your parents are that. They're a blessing to them, or they're a blessing to you. So honor them. And here's the promise. If you honor your parents, you will live long. Now that seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Why does, why does honoring your parents produce long life? I mean, I can understand like eating healthy and exercising, then you'll live long. But honoring parents produces long life. Why would Paul point that out? Now, this is taken from the Ten Commandments. Um, and it, he says it's the only command with a promise. You see, children who honor their parents tend to be children who honor their teachers and their coaches and the other authorities in their lives, the police. They honor all the, the authorities that are around. And if you have a culture, and remember the Ten Commandments aren't just commandments for individuals. God was creating a, a society, a people. And this was kind of their constitution for how they were to live. So he, he's talking about an entire society. And if you have an entire society of children that honor parents, the net effect of that in the society is going to be a stable society. A society in which people actually live longer just because of the stability that's there. And and there's another point to add. Children of Christian parents who honor their Christian parents, the promise is not just that they'll live long. The promise is that they'll live eternally. If If they embrace the message, the gospel that their parents pass down to those children. Okay, so let's shift things to parents. Paul says in the next verse, fathers... And um, he's not just talking to fathers, actually. It's sort of like when he says brothers and he's speaking to brothers and sisters. You know, he's just using the male version to to capture both. Um, So parents, um, Paul says. What he says is your children, your children need you. Okay. One one of the most touching moments in C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy, is when he describes the death of his mother. Which happened at a, he was a very he was maybe ten years old, and it was a traumatic experience for him and This is him as an adult describing his mother 's death. He says, with my mother 's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable, disappeared from my life. There was to be much fun, many pleasures, many stabs of joy, but no more of the old security. It was sea and islands now. The great continent had sunk like Atlantis. So again, parents, your children need you. And what Paul says is for you not to provoke them to anger. How many times have hard-nosed parents driven their children to anger, resentment, and bitterness? Paul says don't do it. Don't drive your child brutally to fulfill some dream that didn't quite pan out for you. Um, Don't push your children too strongly to become the best musician or athlete or academic or scientist or whatever it is. Paul's statement here is very radical because the Greco-Roman view of parenting was just kind of, you know, your children are kind of like your property and you can just drive them like you would drive your workhorse. You know, whatever, get, get what you can out of them. In fact, uh, William Barclay describes uh, Roman fathers this way. He says, a Roman father had absolute uh, uh, power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. 
he could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his own hands, and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. Okay, so that's, that's the kind of view that the church at Ephesus has towards their children. At least that's the dominant view in the culture. So Paul's statement here is radical. It's a call to gentleness, tenderheartedness, and encouragement. It's not a call to be a strict disciplinarian. And yet, lest we think Paul is, is calling us not to strict disciplinarian. I don't remember which side I was going on. Whichever side I've been doing strict disciplinarian on. It's not like he's saying, don't be strict disciplinarian. Be the, the, the gentle cheerleader. He's not saying that because of what he says in the next verse. Or the second section of the verse. He calls parents to the positive. Right? He says, so the negative, don't provoke them to anger is addressing is instructive for the strict disciplinarian. The positive here is instructive um, to the gentle cheerleader. He says, rear them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word discipline refers to training by correction and our children need correction. Uh, The Proverbs say, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is, is diligent to discipline him. Um, you know, if you, if you don't believe that we are born into sin or that we're just kind of sinners by nature, have children because the minute they're able, they will start resisting your will. They will exert their will over against yours from a very, very early age. As soon as they can, they'll start doing that. And they need godly loving discipline in order to train their hearts to love God and love neighbor and and know that the target is the, is the heart. It's not behavior. Behaviors are just sort of signposts to the condition of the heart. And, you know, following correction and discipline, your child's not going to say to you, um, father, thank you so much for providing me with this instructive discipline that is guiding my heart in the way of the Lord. I have not loved my neighbor as I should, or you, or God. Thank you for directing me in the way of obedience. No, they're going to huff, and they're going to puff, and they're going to get red-faced. And, and that's just the nature of discipline, right? The author of Hebrews says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, painful, and yet it produces a fruit of righteousness and peace. And I feel like I have to kind of get into the topic a little bit. And it's a big topic and it's a controversial topic. So I kind of hesitate to even do it because um, there's not really enough time to really get into it in a sufficient way. But I am going to touch upon it. And that is um, that part of this discipline the scriptures teach us includes spanking your child. And why, why do children need spankings? The reason is because sin hurts. Sin will hurt them. It hurt, it hurt. Any, anyone that sins hurts themselves. It may be physically. It may be emotionally. It may be psychologically. And not only does sin hurt the, end of the perpetrator, but it also hurts others. Sin is nasty. And spankings provide a poignant the most poignant reminder to a four-year-old or five-year-old or whatever, that sin hurts. It hurts them. And the best treatment, I guess, of this topic 
that I've seen is a book by Ted Tripp called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And if you're a parent, I I would say this is a must-read book for you. Uh, But in that book, he addresses this topic. And he says, um, I can understand the resistance of many parents to corporal discipline, spanking. Perhaps they themselves were abused. Maybe they experienced discipline that was an expression of, of unbridled anger. They were struck on the fly by parents who were venting anger and frustration. And as children, they may have experienced fear, hurt, and cruel abuse. Perhaps they thought, when I'm a parent, I will never do that to my kids. To all such parents, I say, I heartily agree with your determination not to do to your children what your parents did to you. If you experience such an abusive environment, it was wrong and certainly should never be done to your kids. But what we're talking about is loving discipline, right? The kind of correction that takes a child privately, talks, waits until the whole intensity of the moment has calmed, explains to them, I do not want to do this, but I need to teach you that this behavior, that disobedience is going to hurt you in the long run. It's not good for you. It's not good for those around you. And this is going to help you teach, teach you that. So controlled, loving, um, that's what is commanded. And, and like I said, there's a whole lot more on that um, from Ted Tripp's book. But we're going we're gonna to push on because we've got more to cover in this text. Paul also calls upon parents to provide verbal instruction to their children. Um, so discipl- uh, the discipline is kind of the corrective side of things, maybe more of the negative. Don't do this. Don't do this. The instruction, the second part of that is the positive. Do this. This is how you should live. Um, there's a sociologist named Christian Smith, and he's written a book called Soul Searching. He's writing about the spiritual and religious lives of American teenagers. He's looking at all, I mean, not just Christians, like uh, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, New Agers, whatever. What, if they're a teenager in America, he's looking at kind of their religious lives. And his conclusion in that book is that, parent, that children become like their parents when it comes to matters of religion. So if a parent is, let's say, a devout, faithful Christian uh, that is very serious about their faith, then their teenage child is going to be a devout Christian that's very serious about their faith. If a child's parent's a nominal Christian, you know, they may show up at church every once in a while, maybe even every week, but it doesn't really matter much to them in the home, then the, the child is going to become kind of a nominal Christian that probably leaves the church and then kind of comes back when they have children, you know, to provide that little, to provide that, what their parents provided them. And I find that interesting because that communicates the importance for parents to actually instruct and lead their children, right? It's, it's very tempting for parents to kind of pass, pass the task of faith formation to the church. We'll just kind of let the church handle that. That's the church's job. Maybe even throw them in a Christian school too. You know, maybe get a little extra reinforcement. We'll let the school do that. I mean, churches and Christian schools are, are helpful, but they cannot shoulder the load of your child's faith formation, 
Which is why the Bible puts the responsibility on parents to do that. And one of the key verses in this is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, one of the key passages is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 is called the Shema. It's kind of the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, if you were attending like a Hebrew sporting event, um, you, would, you might see signs in the crowd that said Deuteronomy 6.4. It's that kind of verse. Um, but in that, in that passage, Moses tells parents, teach your children, pass what God has done for us down to your children. Pass the faith down to your children. And he tells, you, tells parents when to do it. He says when you wake up, when you lie down, when you're outside, when you're inside, when you're walking off the property, when you're on your property. He tells them to do it formally, informally. He basically says all the time be communicating to them the deeds of the Lord and be aiming to pass that faith down to them. And Deuteronomy 6 is, is only one of many verses like this where, where the, the Old Testament commands parents to pass down the works of the Lord to their children. And so what I want to do right now is provide just a few practical um, ways in which you can do this. One is uh, family worship. I, w- I, I would recommend spending time every day, maybe at bed for us, for our family, it's time at bed, reading the Bible, praying with your child, Singing, singing hymns, singing songs together as a family, worshiping the Lord. Um, we, we read, there's, there's so many good resources for this, uh, but one good one, and I think it's available at the little book counter back there. It's Sally Lloyd-Jones's The, the Storybook Bible, or I think it's the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, we, we read through that. It's excellent. Even if you don't have any children, I'd recommend you read through it because it really is uh, helpful. Um, but it's, 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 it's great. And our kids love it. Another good one is David Helms. The big picture storybook, the big picture story Bible, um, is another good one. And then as students grow older, um, you know, graduate from these children Bibles to real Bibles and even sprinkle real Bible reading in throughout the younger years as well. And the earlier you begin, the better, um, because for us, we were instructed by a pastor to begin the day we brought our child home from the hospital, our first child. And we did. And it was helpful. I mean, we know that she could not understand a word we were saying. But we were carving the practice into our daily routine. And we were praying for her as well every night. Um, and, and not only that, but it, she will never remember a day in her life when we were not reading the Bible and praying and singing with her. And that's a powerful thing that communicates to children, the seriousness with which we take our faith. Second point. So family worship time. Second is work with catechisms. Cat of what? <laughs> Maybe uh, it's kind of catechisms kind of fallen out of like Protestant evangelical circles in a lot of cases, but it comes from the word, the Greek word katecho. It just means to teach. But a catechism is, provides points of theology, very broad points of theology, in a question and answer format. So, um, and there's, there's a children's catechism that we have at the book, book counter as well that's helpful. Um, but it, it's, it's in a question and answer format. And children have this knack 
for memorizing massive amounts of information. If you're like me, you have friends' phone numbers memorized from elementary school, addresses memorized. You probably have, you know, commercial jingles and the intros to your favorite cartoons memorized. And they're never going to leave. And for me, when Muppet Babies comes into mind, the, the theme song for that, I think, you know, what a waste that I have that in there. Would it not have been better to have the points of the Heidelberg Catechism? Because then I could actually, you know, meditate on these things. So, since, since children are just absorbing this information, why not plug in some good information? Even if they don't understand it at, at, at you know, age five or six or seven, they're going to get it at some point, and it will be in there. It will be in their minds. Here's another point, number three. Limit television and electronic media. I'm not totally opposed to television. Um, I probably watch too much of it. But it's very easy to let the TV babysit your kids or let the iPhone babysit them or the iPad or, you know, there's all kinds of options, right? Electronic little gadgets. And those, those are not very good for their brain. Well, first of all, I think in our experience, it's laziness that drives that on the part of the parent. But it's not good for your child's mind. I mean, there's, there's tons of research that has demonstrated that television is really bad for the brain. Um, you know, telev- if, 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 if we're talking like the bra- exercise for the brain, television is like sitting on a recliner for an hour and reading a book would be like an hour of CrossFit, you know, the, 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 all the things that are going on as a child is looking at letters on a page, decoding those into actual meaning and then cre- kind of constructing a world in their mind. Uh, there's a lot going on in that process. And so it's important, I think, for, for Christians to limit television and, and elevate the, the word text to them. Because the reality is um, Christians need to be able to read well. I mean, God has communicated himself through the word, through written words. And um, it's no surprise that when, when Christian revival happens historically, rates of literacy spike. People become extremely literate where the spirit works because that's the, that's how we learn about God. And so communicating that to our children, maybe it's just turning off the TV one night and reading or even listening um, to a story being told, reading a book. It doesn't have to be the Bible. Good books. I've got lots of opinions on what good books are too. That's kind of one of my little jobs at the school where I work. We try to get rid of the, separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to literature. Cause there's a lot of chaff there. Um, anyway, that, so I'm not even sure what point we're on. I think it's number four, enjoy your children and just enjoy them, you know, laugh with them, go outside with them, play with them, get on your knees and, and, and get into their little world, play along, um, enjoy them. The most poignant way, if you want to teach your child the love of of God and the love that is found in the gospel, the most poignant way to do that is to tend to them and to love them well. And then finally, pray for your children. Um, Parenting is extremely hard, as we've pointed out. If you're like us, you regularly wonder, you know, is this having any impact on them? You know, when I say we do daily devotions every night, don't. You may have in your mind this picture of like this tranquil little, you know, everybody's getting along. We're singing Kumbaya together. 
that's not, I mean, there's a lot of nights where it's just complete chaos. And we wonder, is this, what impact is this going to have? They're not even paying attention to what we're reading. And yet, um, the Spirit's at work and pray that the Spirit would be at work. The Spirit works in, in hidden ways. So pray, pray for your children. Um, we, you know, we hire professionals to do all kinds of things. We are professional plumbers to fix our toilets. We hire professional hairstylists to fix our hair. We hire professional lawn workers to mow our yards. Um, we even hire, and I'm not joking here, we rent grandmas to be the grandparents to our children. If you Google rent a grandma, there's a service where you can find a, a grandma for your child to take care of your child. Um, and so there's good reasons to leave certain work to the professionals, right? I have to hire somebody to do any kind of maintenance work. Um, and there's, there's good reasons to do that, but don't outsource the faith formation of your children to the professionals because it won't, the research says it won't work. And the Bible tells us, I mean, the Bible, that's not the command of the Bible. It's not parents send your children to church. It's parents pass the faith down to your children. The responsibility is on parents. The task is yours. Let me, let me just address one other thing. In in our little cultural climate, there's this tendency to say, well, sure, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to direct my child in the way of Christianity. You know, there's so many options out there and we want to kind of let them dabble here, dabble there and kind of blaze their own trail when it comes to spiritual things. Now, the problem with that is that that's not a neutral approach. You know, it kind of presents itself as like being neutral. Oh, we'll just let them kind of choose themselves. That kind of parenting actually communicates very important things about spiritual matters to your child. You're catechizing your child in kind of a relativistic, you know, view of spiritual things. Okay. Um, Do you see how Paul's instructions to parents here in the, in the Ephesians strikes the balance between the perils of parenting that are common today, right? The strict disciplinarian, um, that's just ready to pounce on their child. The instant they screw up, Paul addresses that. He says, show your child grace, be patient. Don't provoke them to anger. And then to the cheerleader, self-esteem parent, Paul says, provide correction, provide instruction, do discipline, dole it out, but do it lovingly. Children need to know their sin and they need to know their failures so that they can be warmly enveloped in the love of Christ. The the more we understand our sin, actually the greater Christ's love, the sweeter it is to our hearts and to our souls. And correcting, by correcting your child and giving them kind of boundaries, you're, you're helping them understand their weakness and you're driving them towards Christ, or at least you, that's the, the next steps to drive them towards Christ. You see the self-esteem parent fails to provide that kind of structure. They just provide endless and baseless little puffs of encouragement. And you know, if you puff up a balloon too much, it's just happened last week. The kid, I'm blowing up a balloon and my kids are going, make it bigger, make it bigger, make it bigger and pop, right? It, it, it uh, pops. There's a, there's, there's a breaking point for all of this self-esteem talk. And there's a psychologist. I don't, I don't know. I don't think she's a, 
she's uh, at San Diego State. Her name's Jean Twangy. And she um, has written a lot about how the self-esteem movement is actually very dangerous. And it's leading people to um, depression, to misery. It's making them miserable. Because kids are realizing that when they leave school, home, their little little leagues, and they're getting ribbons for everything they do, for just showing up. And then they get into the real world. And a guy says, no, I'm sorry, you're not good enough for this job. They're just, you know, they can't believe it. They've never been told that they were bad at anything. So, and, and then the, the consequence of that is either they just wallow in self-pity or they say, that employer doesn't know anything. And they, turn to, they become narcissistic. So that's dangerous. Um, that's not, loving discipline is, and correction is needed. Do you, do you feel overwhelmed by all of this, parents? Um, if so, that's, that's good. You should feel overwhelmed. Um, but there's good news in this because this passage here that we're looking at actually is flowing from Ephesians chapter five, verse 18. If you look back there, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the spirit, be filled with the spirit. In the 1970s, a bunch of hippies came to Christ and it was called the Jesus movement. And they'd say cheesy things like, don't get high on weed, get high on Jesus. Kind of like, ugh, that sounds just corny. But actually, it's not a bad way to frame the Christian life because Paul says something similar. He says, don't get drunk on alcohol, on wine. Be drunk on the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, when you're drunk on the Spirit, you, your life will not be marked by anger, distance, and selfishness. Your relationships won't be marked by those things. I mean, it will be marked by those things. And that's the backdrop for this passage on parenting is that command be filled with the spirit. In other words, there's a resource beyond ourselves that enables and equips us to love our children as, as we're commanded to do. And that applies for the marriage sermon last week. So, you have the resources you need to properly love your children. But, as Justin reminded us a few weeks ago, the the imperative, right, must emerge from the indicative. The imperative, what we do, must emerge from who we are. And Paul has already explained in great detail, in fact, he spent three chapters doing it, explaining the indicative. He's explaining... Um, what Christ has done for us and who we are as a result of that. And that's the foundation upon which all of the imperatives in the latter part of Ephesians come from. Um, Actually, we pointed out there is one imperative in those first three chapters of Ephesians. And do you remember what it is? Remember, right? And it's actually not only remember, remember the indicative. The imperative is to remember the indicative, who we are. And what does Paul say about who we are? He says we're dead, rebels, foolishly, slavishly following the prince of darkness. We're dead. And yet God has made us alive in Christ. He's breathed life into us. And in chapter 2, he says he's adopted us. I mean, in chapter 2, he says he's adopted us as children. In verse 4 of chapter 2, he says that he's loved us. 
in the, in the basis for that love? Because he loved us. That's basically what Paul is saying. He loved you because he loved you. He didn't love you because you're smart. He didn't love you because you're athletic or musical or funny or because you get the Bible or you get spiritual things or you can raise your arms really well in worship. None of those things caused him to love you. It was because he loved you. It's, it, it, that's, that's the grounds. And that's powerful. Uh, let me just let, let me, let's go back to last week's sermon. Here's a little bonus material from last week um, on the marriage talk. Husbands, if your wife asks you, why do you love me? You know what the answer is? I, f- I figured it out. It's not, I love you because you're beautiful. Because beauty is fleeting, you know, it's like the, the flowers of the field. And what happens, what if something tragic happened and that was lost? I love you because of your great personality. Well, that could slip away as well. You know, if there was a tragic accident, um, those older years, you know, the personality kind of fades. Um, I love you because you're smart. That can go away. So, so how, do you, how do you win with that question? Well, here's how you win. I love you because I love you. That's unconditional love. And that's what God has for us. And that's the kind of, it's, it's, it's as we recognize that, that we are adopted as God's children and that we are loved simply because he loved us. That's the, that's the, out of that, our parenting emerges and our love towards our children comes from that. Okay. Um, Tim Keller's talked about the philo, uh, philanthropist principle and it is this. That uh, philanthropists who give millions and millions of dollars to all of these, you know, causes, how can they do that? The way they do that, or because the, the reason they're able to do that is because they have even more money. They have a reservoir of billions of dollars that they're drawing from. And it's the same with how we love our children, right? Our love towards our children must emerge from the deep reservoir of love that's found in the gospel, now, maybe you're thinking, but it's too late. My children, they're already grown or they seem to be too old. They're just, you know, they're, they're teenagers. They're just going to be cynical now if we start having little family devotionals. Um, well, take heart. The same God who made dead sinners alive can reverse any failures that you might have had as a parent. It's the football season, and I, I enjoy football. And one of my favorite moments in a football game is the busted play. When the quarterback takes the snap, and he, the center botches it, or something goes wrong, right? And the play completely breaks down. The reason that's such a great moment is because at that moment, the quarterback, let's say, or running back, or whoever it is, they're relying on nothing but just instinct and raw athleticism. And that's when you get to see who, who, who the greats are. You know, Johnny Manziel, Johnny Football, off-the-field drama aside, when a play breaks down, it's phenomenal to see him get out of that. Um, and that's one of the things that makes him great. Well, the reality is we have all, in some way or another, busted a play, right? There's kind of a playbook for parenting, and we have messed that up. Um, turn to Jesus, right? He likes to take those situations and make them right because it puts his excellence on display, right? 
he is both willing and able to help reverse any, any shortcomings that we have as a parent. Let's pray. Father, the truth is um, that we are like that center that constantly botches the snap. We bust the play. Our parenting, even if we're doing all of these things and we're very intentional about it, it still doesn't get it right in the end um, necessarily. We need your spirit. And we need, we, need, we need you to help us in that task. And so we ask that you would bless our efforts, help us. Um, we, we want you, we seek you, and we know that you are like a well that uh, provides satisfaction to our souls. And we pray that you would awaken us to that reality. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.